And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. Happy Father's Day weekend. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, we're, we're always thrilled to talk to the gentleman I have on the line, and we're going to, to be uh, talking a little bit about his, uh, his, his fatherhood, if you will, uh, with this weekend coming up, and that is Mr. Carl Erskine of Anderson, Indiana. What's going on, Carl? How are you? Hey there. Good morning, Sam. Well, we're having a beautiful day in Indiana, and uh, it's going to be warm, but we're uh, doing fine. Betty, my sweet wife of 73 years, uh, she's doing well mm. as well. Excellent. Um, I'm glad to hear that, and, and we're going to be going into uh, uh what what you you know your biggest legacy between the two of you of course uh, other you know you everybody appreciates what you've done on the field for the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Los Angeles Dodgers uh, but uh, you know it, when it all comes down to it that's just a game uh, your the, the the type of father you have been and 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 your fatherhood over the course of your life you, you know that is the most important thing that's the most important legacy for sure so let's let's go all the way back to the beginning of course we've talked about your children at certain points on the podcast but i i uh, wherever you want to start with fatherhood and give give our audience a rundown of your family history Okay, well, thank you then. Uh, fortunately, I was uh, had two brothers older than me. Uh, they all they were good athletes, both of them, and uh, and my dad had been an athlete before that, uh, back in the late 1800s. Uh, he was a semi-pro player, and uh, he had a very good throwing arm. And even uh, I was born the third in the line of these three boys. Uh, so my dad was probably close to 40 when I was born, but he could still throw. He loved to throw, and he worked in a uh, managed a grocery store. And the story goes that uh, the train that used to go by uh, on an angle behind the store, uh, when the tr- when the when the old freight train was going by, uh, his buddies would run over and say, "Matt, Matt, hey, grab, grab a couple apples, get out there," and they would bet on him throwing at the numbers on the boxcars as they were going by <laughs> and, and uh, when we'd go to county fair after I got big enough to remember we'd go to county fair my dad would never get past a dunk tank and he'd buy three balls and knock the guy in the water about that two out of three and he'd buy three more I don't think he I, I think he uh, spent his whole paycheck uh, throwing at the guy in the uh, Knocking him into water. Anyway, <laughs> well, I had a good uh, growing up years. I my memories are of playing catch with my dad and brothers by the side of the house, and we had a barn in the back, and uh, we played uh, burnout. Now you probably can figure that out. You start tossing each other nice and easy, but every throw got a little harder. Of course, I was the youngest, and they would pin me back to the old barn. Uh, throwing hard and I would reach up real high to throw hard uh, back and that's how I think I got my straight overhand delivery throwing uh, with my brothers and my dad uh, me trying to throw as hard as they could throw and uh, a good childhood uh, started my baseball career in a park league 
uh, when I was nine years old, and we played on a regular-sized diamond because Little League hadn't come in yet. And uh, I, w- I had a brand-new ball glove uh, my dad bought me. It was kind of a nice yellow color. And uh, uh, a kid wanted to borrow it in between innings, and uh, he was big. And I was nine, he was 12. His name was Chet Porter because I got to know him real well later. He was chewing tobacco. And uh, he wanted to borrow my glove. I said, no, no, I just, this is brand new. My dad just could not give me that glove. He said, I'll punch you in the face. Well, <laughs> he threatened me. Oh, I handed him the glove. And he, he pounded on it a couple times. And then he he took a big spit right in the middle of the pocket. <laughs> and that yellow glove turned dark brown where he spit. <laughs> and I owned that glove for a long time. And it course got dirty and all that but that spot where he fit never hit it was always the darkest so as long as I had that glove I never I always saw that big spit I got to know him as as we grew up and oh that's uh, it's it's a bit of a tangent uh that that I'm gonna go on real quick uh you know, considering where what we're talking about, but I'm just curious. It didn't seem like you were ever a, a big tobacco uh, a, a chewer. It just, you know, since it was such a big thing in in baseball, um, you you could really see any photo that you would you would uh, cue in to see of of uh, your era. You know, you can tell when somebody is a tobacco chewer because they got that big wad in their mouth. It didn't seem like you ever were. Did did you ever get into that? No, I never did. Uh, you know, the coaches, when you're growing up, they tell you you can't smoke and you and you can't drink a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of pop and all that. Lay off of it. That's not good for you. Well, I believed. I believed that. And although my brother smoked, my dad smoked, um, and chewed tobacco, my dad chewed tobacco. But, no, I never had a, a, an idea to go that way. In fact, what little bit I tried as a youngster – I didn't like it anyway, but uh, but in baseball, when I came into baseball professionally, a lot of guys chewed. It was just uh, typical for a player uh, to have a wad in his jaw, but uh, they banned that eventually because of uh, tongue cancer, lip cancer, a lot yeah, of Yeah, right, right. And I, you're too young, Sam, probably to know that there was a, it was a tradition uh, years ago that when the last out was made on the infield, uh, the infielders would not take the glove into the dugout. They would turn, like the shortstop, he would just turn and sail his glove back on the grass behind the shortstop position. Third baseman did it, second baseman did it. And uh, I'm not sure about the first, but anyway, uh, it was a, just a custom. Now, that lasted until the early 50s. Uh, and all the time that uh, I played in the early years, uh, the gloves, they just sail them out and leave them on the, on the field. And what, what would happen when the other team would go out, uh, these gloves were laying there, and oftentimes the shortstop or second baseman, they would pick up this glove and take a wad of tobacco and stuff it up one of the fingers of the glove <laughs> and throw it back on the, on the ground. So the next inning, you could see the, the shortstop or second baseman between pitches trying to dig that chew out of the finger of his glove. <laughs> so that, 
So the, the, the original, the original trolling, as the kids like to say now. <laughs> yeah, right. So well, that lasted. They finally, uh, tobacco was finally banned. But now I watched some baseball today, and I can always tell when the guy has snuff. They don't chew big mm-hmm. wads of tobacco, but they got snuff down in that lower uh, part of their uh, jaw. And you can see that little lump in there, and then you could always tell. Now that's actually illegal, but right. uh, guys get by with it. So uh, I'm I'm wondering. Um, of course, uh, to become a father, you have to have met uh, Betty. So uh, before we get into before we start talking about your children, if you could give us the the story of how you met Betty. I'm I'm sure that we've talked about it before, but I don't know whether I've I've directly asked you. Uh, to to elaborate, I was 15 years old and I got my first bicycle. So I'm tooling around the neighborhood with my buddies, and one of them, he was a little little tiny guy, a little short. He was young. His name was Mouse. The nickname in the neighborhood was Mouse. So Mouse said to me one day, "Do you want to meet a pretty girl?" I said, "Sure." He said, "Let's go." So he took me down. I lived on 14th Street. So he took me down on West Fifth Street. And here's this sweet little girl. She was 14 years old. She was up on the uh, porch, and I uh, pulled up there, and we spoke and met. And uh, somehow uh, the bell started ringing, and it wasn't my bicycle. So that that was uh, <laughs> my first uh, my first girl experience. And so you know, I never had another girlfriend besides Betty from age 14. And uh, I know her homeroom teacher at school, when we would walk around the halls uh, holding hands or whatever, uh, Mrs. Lashbrook told Betty uh, to the side, now you stay away from that black-headed boy. <laughs> so I'd like to find Mrs. Lashbrook to tell her we've been married 73 years. <laughs> exactly. So Betty, yeah, so Betty and I uh, dated through school. I went in the Navy when I graduated from high school. I was in the Navy for a while, and uh, when the war ended, I got out, and uh, about a year later, I was in the minors. Well, as soon as I got out, I went, Mr. Ricky signed me, and uh, I went to the minor leagues uh, in Danville, Illinois, was uh, the minor league team for the Dodgers, and it was about 100, uh, 110 miles from where I lived in Anderson, Indiana, over Illinois, so my mother and dad, Betty's mother and dad, <laughs> They would come over every time I pitched at Danville. Uh, at the end of that season, I gave her the ring. Uh, we got, and Mr. Ricky wanted me to go to Cuba to play in the Winter League. And I said, I can't go. I'm getting married in October. Move your date up and uh, take your wife with you. We'll pay her expenses, too. So Betty and I went to Cuba on our honeymoon. <laughs> and, and I, wow. I must have, we were there four and a half months. And really, it's a whole other story, but that experience in that winter league in Cuba, which I would say was trip, was probably double-A AA or triple-A class, uh, a lot of good baseball in Cuba uh, at that time, maybe still. But um, we went mm-hmm. there four and a half months, and uh, that experience there, had two things happened. Betty got pregnant uh, pretty quick, and... And I also uh, worked on my curveball in Cuba. And when I came back to spring training, the coaches was, 
were all astounded at the curveball I developed. And uh, that really hustled me. The Dodgers had 200 players, two, excuse me, 200 pitchers in their uh, system. Uh, and, boy, I thought, how am I going to beat out all these guys? But, you know, that curveball uh, developed so quick for me, and I had a good fastball. And Mr. Ricky loved young players who could throw hard, but who had the aptitude to uh, embellish their talent. They weren't just a raw, hard thrower. They could finesse the pitches off speeds and still have that hard fastball. And I could do that, and Mr. Ricky moved me up through. Uh, he leapfrogged me over 200 pitchers, and I only spent an uh and they brought me to the big league. So uh, that trip to Cuba with my new bride and getting that curveball to work like I wanted it, uh, <clears throat> two of the major things of my life happened yeah. on that trip to Cuba. And when thinking about Branch Rickey, uh, Mr. Rickey, of course, was uh, very much of the uh, – of of the the book and um he loved it, based on what i'm reading it it seemed like he he really appreciated when a, a ball player uh as opposed to to leo derosha now even though leo derosha was married of course he seemed to get around uh of course so the story goes actually so so the the quote from leo goes really so when it when it came uh to you and and other younger ball players mr ricky loved it when you, you were settling down early. He, he uh, encouraged. Uh, instead, we'd have one-on-one -on -one meetings with Mr. Ricky, and uh, a major league owner he, he was surprised. He'd ask us two, at least two questions. Mr. Ricky would probe to say, uh, what's your father's hobby? Uh, what do you do in the off-season? Uh, uh, do, do you go to church? Uh, do you have a girlfriend? Mr. Ricky was always probing out what your character was like, and he, as a an owner, and had eight almost 800 players under contract through the whole minor leagues, 26 farm teams. Uh, but he always wanted uh, young players. He knew he was a young man himself at one time. He knew with a little money in your pocket, staying in a big hotel. Uh, traveling around the country, that there was a lot of temptations. So his advice to almost every player he talked to, young player like me, uh, are you, uh, do you do you have a girlfriend? Uh, he encouraged his players to get married, assuming that that would be a stabilizing uh, force for <laughs> all the temptations that would come uh, traveling around so much. So, yes. And I always felt like that one of the things that tipped the scales toward Jackie Robinson's being selected for the first black uh, player was Rachel, his wife. Uh, Rachel was a beautiful lady. Uh, it still is, a matter of fact. I think she's in her mid-90s at least. Uh, but Rachel had a stabling effect on Jackie. And Mr. Ricky wisely understood that Jackie would be off the field a lot more than he would be on the field. So all the hours away from the diamond, um, he knew that Rachel 
was a real stabilizing force in in Jackie's life. And so that was a tipping point, I think, for Mr. Ricky to pick Jackie. Uh, right. The first black player. And and I've I just heard I was just talking. It's funny that you're mentioning it because I was just talking with somebody who was mentioning the story of I think it was Clyde Sukeforth who uh, I, I I believe it was a minor league game and or it might have been a Negro league game and he saw Rachel with the other wives and he went back to Mr. Ricky and said if if the man is good enough for Rachel Robinson uh, he you know he's good enough for us. Yeah, that that story was Buzzy Bavese, who Right, was, right, I got the name wrong. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, I just happened to have heard that story as well. But, uh, Buzzy Bavese went to, uh, I believe it was Montreal, when, uh, uh, what, wherever it was, he, he saw Rachel, uh, again, a beautiful lady, very dignified lady, well-educated. Rachel had a degree in psych. You see, and uh, she had she had a she had a, a nursing degree, I believe, um, and so she was an intelligent person. And it's interesting, if you don't mind me digressing just a little bit here, uh, I got to know Mrs. Babe Ruth quite well because I was oh, wow. uh, involved in the, the the league called Babe Ruth Baseball, and uh, I was on the board. And I got to know Mrs. Babe Ruth quite well, and I'd go with her on various functions. And she she never had her own identity. Uh, she was always Babe Ruth's wife. Tell me about Babe. Did Babe really do this? Did Babe really eat uh, two loaves of bread and two bottles of ketchup and <laughs> two steaks and <laughs> all these <laughs> things that were told about Babe Ruth? Uh, and so I, I got the feeling she doesn't have a life of her own. She had no identity. She's Babe Ruth's wife, and and so everything revolves around what Babe did. Rachel was just the opposite. She was Jackie's wife, but she was a she was a force of her own. She stood as a woman uh, that was her own. She was her own gal, and uh, hmm. it 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 was a contrast on how the two handled a famous husband. And in the case of Rachel Robinson, Rachel was devoted to Jackie, his his best critic uh, and his best support. But she was a good advisor to to Jackie Hmm. under all the pressure that he had, and he had to control his temper. Rachel Robinson Mm -hmm. was a factor, a big factor, and, and Mr. Ricky, when he met Rachel, he must have said, this is the whole package. This guy can play. This guy's smart. This guy has a beautiful, solid wife and, and home life. And, you know, I don't think that ever was explored much with the writers of how much Rachel, uh, off the field and in other pressure situations, how much she contributed to Jackie's ability to hold his temper, and and he never fought. Uh, there's no record any place where he ever fought in a clubhouse, a parking lot, a restaurant, any place. Uh, amazing, because Jackie was actually a militant uh, makeup, but Mr. Ricky's guidance and the bonding that they had 
and the commitment that Jackie made that I'll, I won't fight, uh, mm-hmm. that made that experiment experiment successful. And uh, as they try to figure out when to play baseball, when they're going to play baseball, I really hope that they have a specific day that that basically recreates what they would have done on April 15th uh, with everybody wearing number 42. And, and uh, you know, you know, we give our best out there uh, to, of safe and health to Mrs. Robinson. Uh, I, it, it's, it's remarkable, all these stories, Carl, and, and so many different places to go, so many different characters involved. It's both so fascinating and so daunting to get to all of it. And, and I, I cannot, I cannot thank you enough for being here for me and for being here for our audience to, to be able to go through this. And, and uh, where, where I want to go next, of course, is, is your own family. Uh, and uh, if you could, uh, if you could uh, remind us how many kids you have and also start from the beginning, when was your first kid born? Yes. Uh, well, early in our marriage, because uh, I just mentioned on our trip to Cuba, uh, four and a half months, Betty got pregnant. So my first son was uh, born in 1948, uh, Danny, my oldest son. And uh, two years later, Gary came along. And then about three years later, my daughter Susan came along. And then uh, they were, my kids grew up uh, around the clubhouse, uh, my two boys especially, I take them often on a Saturday uh, in the Davis Field clubhouse, and uh, they got to know all the players. And, uh, and what was interesting in New York at that time, of course, with three teams in New York, the boys, my boys, also saw on TV saw Willie Mays play, and then some of the Yankee players play. So my boys knew the Dodgers just like nothing. But, boy, they were fascinated. So one of my boys was a Willie Mays fan, and the other one was a Mantle, Mickey Mantle fan. <laughs> and uh, so I tell them, don't, talk, don't say too much in the clubhouse. <laughs> yeah, don't say anything in front of Duke, please. Go. <laughs> well, we had a lot of fun kidding about that. And, uh, but, but my boys was fortunate to get to. Uh, and in those days, security was not in anywhere close to to what it is today so uh, you could bring friends in the clubhouse and and the guys did and the other players you know one you talk about how uh people bond with each other and uh, oftentimes they talk in uh, terms of family like uh the the team is like a family well let me tell you young players as the dodgers had many of in uh, when i went up i was 21 and there was a lot of young players on the Dodgers uh, team, all having families. And there were dads, a lot of dads on on the teams. They bring their, uh, t- they wouldn't bring their girls, but they'd often bring their boys to the clubhouse. So not only did we play together, uh, we grew up together, sort of, and we raised our families together. Uh, picnics on an off day was uh, a big family day with. Everybody's kids, and uh, it was it was just uh, a range of ages, uh, too. Uh, but they, my boys were very familiar with Ebbets Field, and 
uh, one time uh, Saks Fifth Avenue had a big promotion on Father's Day, and they said uh, to me, "Would you, uh, would you and your son Danny, your oldest son, uh, would you take a picture uh, for Father's Day?" And so they made a Dodger uniform for Danny. He was he was three years old. They <laughs> made a full Dodger uniform uh, for Danny, uh, just like mine. And then uh, they took a picture of us uh, playing catch or something. And so so family was uh, a part of the bonding of that team and, and played together. You know, we played together 10, maybe 12 years, most of us. And uh, yeah. so we did truly have a, a, a family bonding there. The wives were close, uh, uh, met on the uh, play bridge when the team's on the road. Uh, a lot of the wives would get together. So uh, as we played through, I was in the league 12 seasons, and as, as we played through each season, uh, our families grew up together. So it was truly, uh, uh, thinking about Father's Day, <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we, we truly had uh, a bunch of young fathers on the Dodgers. So how did your kids take the move to to Los Angeles? Yeah, they were uh, probably about eight years old and six years old, the two boys. Uh, Well, when we got to L.A., we lived in Lakewood uh, the first summer in 58, and uh, they they got on uh, teams in the park, and uh, so they just, just adapted really easy to the move to Los Angeles. And uh, I was there two two seasons, uh, so we got acquainted with a few people. And but the boys uh, both played in little league uh, in in Los Angeles, so uh, they didn't miss much uh, making the move. They just kind of adapted right into it. Was there any frustration? Did did they ask you a lot of questions about it at first? You know, when when hearing that the Dodgers were, especially growing up in Brooklyn, they they must have had some sort of emotional connection with the other families, not just the other families of of the ballplayers, but also within Brooklyn confines. Well, you're right, because uh, we lived in a section of Brooklyn called Bay Ridge, and the neighbors, we, we it was like a small town. Bay Ridge was, uh, you know, we knew the barber, we knew the butcher, we knew the baker, the uh, the deli guy, and uh, the cab drivers. Uh, it was like uh, like Anderson, Indiana, uh, is a relatively small town. Well, uh, Brooklyn, uh, to us, from the Midwest. It, it became another uh, small town within a big city. Uh, so the the move was uh, leaving a lot of friends, uh, babysitters, uh, neighbors, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was a it was a big adjustment. And we lived in Lakewood the first summer in Los Angeles, and uh, the boys got acquainted pretty quick with the neighbor kids and. Uh, I think they had less problem adjusting to the move than uh, than some of the players. Uh, hmm. most, the boys of summer, as uh, the nucleus of that team was called, uh, the boys of summer probably most of us had already had our best years in Brooklyn. Uh, I played ten seasons in Brooklyn, and 
uh, all my best uh, best days were already behind me by the time we moved in 58. I did get to pitch the opener in Los Angeles. Coliseum was where we played uh, the games in 58 and 9. Um, I think maybe three years before Dodger Stadium was built. But I got to pitch, uh, surprisingly, I got, was picked to pitch the opener uh, in Los Angeles against the Giants and and in in a football stadium. And so it was a big day and uh, had the actual uh, attendance was 79,000 or something. It had over 80,000, count all the comps and the press and everything. So it was a strange move, a strange mm-hmm. opening day, uh, and uh, a strange crowd. Uh, it was a lot of movie stars that was, uh, showed up. They were more a piece of a history than than a, an opening day the way it had been in Brooklyn. But um, it was just something you had to do, and uh, you just had to make the adjustment. And uh, we played poorly the first year in L.A., too. Mm. Uh, I was in uh, the Dodger organization 14 years, and I never played a, in any of those seasons below second place. We either won the league, minor leagues, major leagues, uh, but to move to L.A., uh, we just were not together. We didn't play well. And in an eight-team league, we finished seventh. Now, that was a strange feeling to play on a team that was not in contention. But, uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of – so, eight, 58 was a, a poor season for our first in L.A., and, uh, 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 be, uh, before we get back to your family, uh, my question: What do you think affected your your overall numbers the most in 1958, and then it also, as well in 1959? Well, personally, uh, I was at the end of my career, and I'd had a lot of arm trouble, and it was still dogging me. Uh, I didn't win many games in Los Angeles, uh, and. Um, I was not uh, effective, and I knew it. I felt it. So in '59, uh, I went in and told Buzzy Bavese, our general manager, Buzzy, I think I've well, I talked to Alston first, the manager. I said, you know, I'm just not productive, and uh, I'm not being able to be used like I should because my arm's not sound, and so I think I'm just going to hang him up. Well. Duke tried to talk me out of it. He was my roommate. And Drysdale and uh, uh, all two or three guys uh, on the team uh, said, you can't quit, Carl, and you can't quit. I said, you know, when you get to the point where you're not productive, uh, you can't stay there. It's a, it's, it's a given. If you make the big leagues, which is tough to do, but the tougher part is to stay there because once you make it, you have to be productive or you don't have a job. you got to go back to the minors and either either get better or that to be the end of your big league career. So I knew I was not productive. The Dodgers have been very uh, generous with me to uh, go along with my arm trouble. Uh, but I got to the point where I knew 
I just was uh, not effective. So I, I told Buzzy Bavazio, general manager, you're going to have to you're going to have to let me go because I I just feel like I so I put on the uh, I said what are my choices and the choice I finally took was voluntarily retiring. So Bavazio mm-hmm. said to me, uh, Carlos, on June 15th, we're right in the middle of the season, so I'm not going to release you. Uh, I'm going to make you a coach, and you can work your contract out the rest of the season in 59. So that's what I did. And you know what? Roger Craig replaced me uh, on the pitching staff. He won 11 games the second half of the season. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that was a a big contribution to the win, uh, winning the World Series against the White Sox that year. So finishing seventh in 58 and winning the World Series in 59, that was a that was a story with uh, the move to Los Angeles. Well, I think uh, you guys spoiled uh, L.A. You know, Brooklyn had to wait like 71 years for a world championship, and then you guys got L.A. in two. <laughs> it's, uh, right. it's just like that's just the way that's the way life works, ain't it? Uh, the, um, remind me again of your daughter's uh, your daughter's name and how old was she at this point? Uh, Susan was about three years old when we moved to L.A. Yeah, so okay, uh, okay. Susan's now a grandmother of eight, and uh, <laughs> she's uh, manages a, 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 a an office in Albany, Georgia, and uh, she's a sweet little girl. And uh, I didn't have any trouble with age when I got uh, to be fifty, sixty, seventy, and so forth. But what shook me up? Sweet little daughter Susan became a grandmother. <laughs> I, I couldn't, I couldn't factor that in. <laughs> yeah, it didn't compute for you. Yeah. I, so, so uh, let's let's go into your family life uh, post 1959, post retirement in the World Series. Well, uh, I can remember driving home uh, cross country at the end of the '59 season, and. Uh, we stopped at all the tourist attractions and came back to Anderson, Indiana. Uh, all my opportunities after baseball were somewhere besides uh, Anderson, Indiana. Uh, I got some real good offers to stay in baseball. The expansion was going on right then, and the Mets were a new team. Uh, they offered me two or three ways to come back and be a part of the New York uh, uh, and uh, but my, uh, the, my fourth child, the day let's see, 1960 uh, was my first season out of baseball, and Betty was pregnant again. And uh, in April, on April 1st of 1960, uh, my little guy Jimmy was born. And in the hospital, uh, I sensed something was not right. And uh, I asked the doctor, is, is my little guy Jimmy, is he is he okay? And they said, well, why don't you take him to Riley Hospital in Indianapolis, a children's hospital, and uh, have him fully examined and, and evaluated? Well, that was almost a dodge because I knew all these doctors are good friends of mine. And uh, they didn't want to tell me that Jimmy was born, and listen to this harsh word, mongoloid. That was the term for Down syndrome. 
now, which is Down syndrome. Well, Jimmy, my little guy Jimmy, was born, and uh, he was Down syndrome. And so what a shocker. So I, I just... I just had to take a, a, a wise move and stay in my hometown with my family and not take one of these good offers I was getting for some of the expansion teams for the Mets. They, the Mets offered me not only a pitching coach job, but when I said I couldn't do that, they said, well, how about broadcasting, would you? And mm-hmm. Ralph Kiner got the... A spot that I might have gotten. Oh wow! And he he stayed for a long time with the mess, <laughs> but I had to yeah. step out of baseball and stay home because um, my oldest child was twelve, and uh, Jimmy brand new, and we didn't know what experience we were going to have with Jimmy. Uh, but you know, Betty was so strong. They they advised us the good doctors in those days. Uh, advised us that we should put Jimmy in a good institution where he would be well cared for and here was the key verse and it won't interrupt your family it won't disrupt your family uh, that hmm. was a, that was a feeling about a child with uh, some disabilities uh, hmm. mental disabilities or physical uh, it, it kind of it, it was kind of a scar on the family, and so families withdrew. Uh, there was nothing in the mainstream for a child uh, with with disabilities. Uh, no school, no services, and uh, good doctors had no place to refer a family with a child that was a so special needs child. But Betty. She almost put two fists up and said, "I'm not putting this guy in any my little guy in any." <laughs> I carried this guy for nine months. He's going home with us. Well, I went home that day and I set my three kids down on the on the Davenport and I told them about their new little brother that he was going to need lots of help. Uh, he wouldn't be able to ride a bike as quick or swim or some of the things they did and. Uh, my kids, from day one, they were so supportive of Jimmy. Now, a lot of years have passed since those days when Jimmy was brand new. Uh, we had special ed came in when he was 12. He got to actually go to school. And uh, Jimmy grew up uh, in Special Olympics. Uh, he was a swimmer. Uh, he uh, track and field. Uh, he's a bowler now. He like he's a, he's a pretty good bowler, and so Jimmy has been given a life that was so different than most kids born earlier than Jimmy. Over the centuries, uh, people who had a, a disabled child usually withdrew from the mainstream of society because uh, their child didn't fit in any place. Well, in Jimmy's lifetime, uh, the world has turned around. Unfortunately, Jimmy has had friends all over the place. He went to some 40-some camps with me to the fantasy camp with the Dodgers. Uh, he knows more high rollers in the United States than you can count. <laughs> all these doctors.
doctors and uh, attorneys all that came to the fantasy camps. They all got to know Jimmy. And uh, so Jimmy's had a wonderful life. He's um, He works at Applebee's Restaurant, and he just got an award March 1st for being there 20 years. And wow. he works, works before they open. Now, Jimmy's quite limited, and he needs lots of support. But society today uh, sees a Downs person. They embrace them. They, they include them. They, they're, they're almost, uh, almost singled out as a special person, which they are. And so Jimmy's life has been so different than it might have been. But uh, all the wonderful changes have happened, and now uh, we have lots of services for special needs people. Uh, there's uh, besides special education, there's group homes or job placement. Uh, the whole world is turned around for Jimmy. Uh, and if he'd been born 20 years earlier, uh, he'd have had a very different life. But uh, I always, I always think of the story that that you've told before, but I'd love to for you to tell it again um, about Walter O'Malley on opening day with Jimmy. And if if there's any way um, you could remind us also, if you remember what year that was. Well, that year uh, had to be uh, the mid '60s. I don't know exactly which year, but Jimmy was. Uh, probably 12 years old, and uh, the Dodgers had invited me back many times to functions. And so this was one of the invitations I had to come back for a, a Dodger weekend. And uh, we were in the Dodgers uh, special suite. Uh, Mr. O'Malley had other guests there besides us, and uh, he was trying to be the, the real host, uh, asking everybody what they needed. So they had a kitchen in this uh, suite. Uh, so he was going back to the kitchen and fixing uh, sandwiches or hot dogs or whatever. So he came to us and said, well, now, what's the Erskine's going to like to have? And Jimmy, uh, he said, Jimmy, would you like to have a hot dog? And Jimmy said, two. <laughs> he wanted two <laughs> hot dogs. So Walter O'Malley in the middle of a major league game, uh, he's back in the kitchen fixing Jimmy two hot dogs and bringing them out and presenting them to him. And so that's a good example of how Jimmy's life uh, was changed by the way society accepted and uh, included him and others like him. And so it, it took a long time, but for centuries, uh, people like Jimmy was not included and they were excluded. In fact, there was a lot of taboo and uh, superstition about a family that had a special child, and it, it they just withdrew from the mainstream. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, in Jimmy's lifetime, now I wrote a little book. It's called The Parallel, and what the Parallel was not a published book, uh, just uh, commercially. I had it. Uh, I wrote it, and the Parallel is about my. Nine seasons watching how Jackie Robinson changed society and changed our culture, really, and, uh, and, and all the changes that Jackie and his race represented. But 
after playing nine seasons with Jackie. Now I've lived a lifetime with Jimmy. And I saw lots of parallels between how Jackie's race didn't fit in for a long time. And Jackie made big headway uh, before Martin Luther King even. Uh, now, living with Jimmy and bringing him up through uh, the culture of the times, I saw the same thing happen with Jimmy and his population. The the whole uh, culture began to change. People began to be accepted. Uh, schools happened. And so I call the little book I wrote The Parallel, and it's a story of my nine seasons with Jackie and my lifetime with Jimmy. And uh, I just donated the book to uh, Indiana Special Olympics for their donors. But it's a little hardback book. You can't buy it in a bookstore. You, mm. you have to get it online by giving a donation to Special Olympics. And then you get a hardback book called A Parallel. And so I'm real proud of that little book because it does explain a huge cultural change the, affected by Jackie and what he did and all the special people that uh, represented by Jimmy. So, and I just I just want to let the audience once more know, uh, Erskine Green Training Institute, you can go to ErskineGreenInstitute.org, and you can donate and receive Carl Erskine's book, The Parallel. Uh, I'm, I'm right here on the website now, and I will certainly do so myself, Carl. Thank you. Um, I, so I, I, I guess I'll, I'll frame it this way. Um, in talking about fatherhood, um, what did you? It's 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 a three part question. So so uh, answer it how however you will. Um, what did you know about fatherhood? What did you hear about fatherhood going into your first uh, experience, your first kid? Um, what has fatherhood taught you? Uh, and what has has raising Jimmy? also taught you the challenges of that about fatherhood well you know we're all affected by our own environment and uh and your own family my father i had great respect for my father uh he was a hard-working man and in those days uh paycheck to paycheck and uh but he took time with me and my brothers uh, we fished together. We hunted together. Uh, we went to uh, uh, sporting events together. Uh, and my dad, I can always remember when I was a small, maybe uh, uh, eight years, six years old, uh, my dad worked at a General Motors plant eventually after he was manager of a, of a grocery store. Uh, he had a black uh, lunch bucket. And he walked to work about two miles from where we lived. He walked to work every day, and he walked home uh, about 4 o'clock in the evening. And he came, always came with that black lunch bucket, and he had always saved me something from his lunch. I mean, if he had an apple or a, uh, whatever, uh, he always saved me something, and I couldn't wait for my dad to get home and see what he had in his lunch bucket for me. And uh, so we had that kind of a relationship. So that shaped my 
view of what a father ought to be. And when my first son, Danny, was born, uh, I tried to be as much like my dad, (laughs) always uh, keeping my kids in mind, always making them feel uh, like I loved them and uh, always had a surprise for them. So I think my, uh, I always thought my dad, and next to my dad, influence was Mr. Ricky. Uh, Branch Ricky had a great influence on me uh, for a faith life and, uh, and a controlled life or a good lifestyle. Uh, and then I was very, very affected uh, not to influence my kids the wrong way. So having a family uh, helped me look straight at myself. You know, one of the charges in the Bible is uh, examine yourself. And I always thought about that. Examine yourself. Uh, don't be critical of somebody else so much. Just look at look at what your life's like and how you're handling it. And that my kids were responsible uh for me feel that way after my own father's uh, good example. So it's it just a, a responsibility of being a father, uh, being a provider, uh, then setting an example. Uh, don't tell your kids to do one thing and, and you do something else. Um, try to live out the discipline in your life that uh, you want your kids to, to be. So, yeah, it's a learning experience. Um, My wife and I now, (laughs) we smile because we have a big family. And I said, well, Betty, remember, uh, this all started when I kissed you in the back seat of the car. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's a learning experience being a parent and a father. But uh, I try to take... uh, the leadership role in the family uh, of uh, setting a lifestyle that was uh, honorable. And uh, we have always had a faith life. We've been, the church has been important to us uh, all the time. And uh, Mr. Ricky, even himself, a good Christian, he uh, he had his own way of teaching uh, the young players about handling pressure uh, and the disciplines that it took. So uh, those two men, my dad and Mr. Ricky, <laughs> they they were the best coaches I could have on how to be a good father. And I know that, uh, it, it, you know, everything I've been reading about Ricky says that a lot of times he would speak to you in stories, and, and it wouldn't always – he, you know, he he sometimes would have to explain what the moral was, and sometimes he wouldn't. It would be uh, obvious. It would be obvious. Uh, but is there any uh, recollection you have of a story he told to try to to try to uh, teach you something? Yeah, I can give you a good example. Mr. Ricky, one time he he did a lot of one-on-ones with his players uh, in his office, but um, Mr. Ricky one time told me. Uh, uh, he held up a baseball, and he said, uh, Carl, you know, uh, life takes discipline. And uh, I recommend all my players 
to have a faith life, to sit in a place of worship where they can concentrate on uh, the values of life, uh, can uh, read about Christ and and what he taught. And uh, he said, look, see this baseball? Uh, the Christian life, he said, is, uh, is just like this uh, red thread. This red thread uh, holds this baseball together. And... Uh, and that's the way the a faith life will do. It'll hold your life together, uh, just like this red thread. And I couldn't help but stand on a mound when I was a young pitcher, uh, rubbing the ball and under a lot of pressure with the bases loaded or whatever. And I'd look at that baseball and those red stitches, <laughs> and I'd say, hmm. thank you, Mr. Ricky. Uh, thank you for giving me the confidence that, You've given me to put me where I'm at. And, you know, that was a great lesson for me, Uh, Mm -hmm. simple as it was. uh, And I've often used it in talking to young people. Uh, And it's so interesting when you think about the the feeling of a baseball then, you know, again, a little bit of a tangent, but – Nowadays, it's all, you know, by the book, each baseball is more or less the same. I'm, I'm guessing it's it, it it's not hand-stitched, but at the time, you know, uh, did, did you ever know, did you notice how different each baseball was? Oh, absolutely. No, no question. Uh, unknown and unseen by the fans, a pitcher uh, gets a new ball and there's an automatic way that the pitcher rubs, rolls the ball around his hand and feels the stitches. And there's always a better place. Uh, ball, balls have a tolerance. They're not perfect. And they are all, I think they may still be hand-stitched. I'm not sure about that. but they yeah, Actually, never, that's a good question. Well, they never figured out how to machine-stitch a ball. Uh, they've tried several ways to... Uh, get a machine stitch ball. I, I think they've always had to go back to hand stitched baseballs, and uh, I know it's done in Puerto Rico or somewhere now, uh, mostly. But uh, yeah, every baseball has its own personality, it has its own feel, and a pitcher just by you don't have to look at it. You can just hold it and turn it and feel it and feel the seams, and you can you can quickly within a few seconds you can figure the best spot on the ball for your particular pitch. And uh, occasionally you'll see a pitcher get a new ball, he'll hold it for a few minutes, uh, a short time, and then he'll he'll call for another one. He'll throw it out because sometimes uh, stitches are flat and you, you, just, you just don't feel good for a grip. And uh, so, yeah, each each ball is rubbed up by the umpires before the game as to take the shine off of the ball uh, and so it's not as slick but um, every every ball you get is different and, and by the way yeah it, according to what I just looked up on Google all baseballs are still hand sewn yeah so remarkable well Look at that. that I think they've tried uh, over time they've tried to uh, find a way to get a machine stitch baseball but they, they've never found one that really was efficient and so that confirms what I have always thought that they've gone now back to uh, to hand stitching and, uh, um, and and I'd like to leave with this in, in some fashion you know um, 
recently we had a, a, um, a Perry Barber, who is a, a lady umpire uh, in the minor leagues. And, you know, we, we were, it was on our Mets podcast and uh, we were talking about how we can understand athletics. Uh, I can understand athletics being separate and, and maybe one day, I think baseball especially has the ability to be uh, integrated sec- from a, a, a sex standpoint. Uh, just be based off of certain p- uh, positions, I, I think women could probably uh, pitch rather well uh, at the major league level. Uh, but, you know, umpiring, there's nothing that ever screams uh, uh, that a man has to do it, which was I- interesting to go into with her. But but other, other than that element of it, I'm curious from your fatherhood experience whether – uh, Susan ever showed an uh, inclination for athletics uh, from a baseball perspective, whether you ever had a catch with her, because of course, traditionally, it's always been about the father and the son when we think of, of the baseball nostalgia of America. Um, but but it, more and more, I think the, the it, it, it is starting to, to wither away some of that tradition and, and, the, the father's relationship with their daughters in baseball is coming more to, to the, the, the forefront. Well, yeah, I can confirm that because uh, even at my age, I still get a lot of mail. Now, I answer my mail, so that perpetuates more mail. But I, I get a lot of letters from uh, fathers and sons and fathers and daughters who use the baseball cards, the old bubblegum cards. They're still producing those cards. And, uh, and fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, now are bonding using the cards of the past. And for the youngsters, uh, players of, the, of current times. And uh, so it's become a, a real uh, obvious uh, bonding between uh, fathers and sons and fathers and daughters and now I get I get mail from uh, uh, girls ladies sometimes uh, who'd followed baseball or have uh, been in school writing about Jackie Robinson and uh, so uh, yes the girls are absolute well in all sports now uh, girls have excelled and uh, they certainly are great athletes. Uh, before, girls never got a chance, but now that they're right. in, in all sports, uh, and I think there's a chance that sometime, uh, I know, I'm pretty sure that uh, the NBA has uh, women officials. I am, uh, this, I'm yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Positive that, yeah. And in the minor leagues, I think we've had some female uh, umpires. But, uh, yeah, I think that will happen. Well, it, 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 and it's interesting, though. I think it also speaks to the old boys club, if you will, that the, the, the fact that, you know, like you said, NBA is already – I've seen a lot of women officials out, out there. Uh, but every single official in Major League Baseball is still men. Yeah. Right. Well, tradition dies hard, so, uh, and baseball has a lot of tradition to it. And so it's always been a men's game, and uh, it's always been a men's uh, umpiring. But 
there'd be no reason why uh, women couldn't umpire. And uh, and I think it'll happen. Uh, and it's just uh, the culture, uh, you know, about every generation or so, the culture adjusts to some of those things. Uh, right. Some of them die slow, uh, and, and it doesn't seem like uh, that's the way to go. But actually, uh, not only have women become prominent in almost every industry, Men have become stay-at-home fathers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a twist. Yeah. yeah. No, there's, it, it, it is. It's, it's amazing to see the way that society responds to itself. Um, and, and we're, you know, especially right now, we're seeing everything unfold at, at such a rapid pace. Um, but, but without bringing up some of the, the non-baseball related stuff going on, I will, I, I will tie it into uh, baseball with, with the way they have to respond to the COVID crisis. So I'd be remiss if, if we didn't, uh, uh, if we got to the end of this podcast without asking you what your opinion is of the negotiations going on as a former player, uh, especially a former player that was around before the union existed. What is your opinion about the fact that they, they, they don't seem to be able to come to terms with how to get baseball back? Well, you know, if if the games don't happen, uh, everything else goes away too. Uh, a lot of guys right now are worried about the uh, their pension. Uh, guys my my age or even quite younger uh, are sweating it out that if we don't play baseball, uh, how's this pension going to get funded? That I've been I've been getting a check every month, and so there's some sweat going on between uh, the retired hmm. players, but. Uh, it's it's the old story. Um, unions and uh, management have always had trouble feeling like they were on the same side. Uh, the, one's the enemy, uh, depending on which chair you're sitting in. But uh, what's happening now with this virus uh, is such a strange way to have to calculate what to do. Uh, it, you could you could be open too fast, or if you're not open fast enough. Uh, things go away, and uh, so it's a it's a, such an uncertain time. I don't think there's any pat answer except that the main thing is the sport itself has to has to be uh, happening. If the sport goes away, all the good fringes about the sport they also go away. So they must find a way. I think this year to finish a season so we can have a playoff and a World Series and an All-Star game because all those funding things are what makes uh, the salaries big. It's what makes the pension. You know, I was a player rep, uh, player representative for almost a decade with the Dodgers, and I was one of the early people uh, fortunate to be in on the new monies from television coming into baseball, and the owners agreed with the player reps to allow 60% of the new revenues from uh, television to be used for a pension plan because baseball really had no pension plan until about the 1950s. And so I was very proud and very – I'm not bragging about it, but I'm very, very proud that uh, I was a small part 
as a player representative in those years to get the pension plan set up that's used today. But it's funded by uh, revenues from the All-Star Game and the World Series. So um, uh, that would affect a lot of players, about 6,000. There's about 6,000 players and former players mm-hmm. that are covered by the pension plan. And uh, that that's a little bit uncertain right now if baseball doesn't get back together. So there's a lot of reasons why this sport, which is – from my mail that I get, which has been heavy during this uh, pandemic, uh, there's a lot of deep interest for baseball, and but we can't let it die on the vine. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So uh, anyway, uh, no, I never didn't give you real answers, but uh, <laughs> there, well, there is a reality to this whole thing. Uh, the first thing is to get this uh, this uh, virus under control and uh, get a vaccine and all that. That will clear up a lot of the concerns about what's going to happen. But as long as we're still in this limbo period of uh, this virus is still around, it's still peaking up in different places, and there's still no certain path to victory here until somebody – like polio when I was a young guy. Mm-hmm. Polio was uh, rampant in the world until Dr. Falk uh, found a, uh, a vaccine for it or whatever uh, to control it. Uh, so we got to get to that point with this virus so everything else can take its place and go forward. Uh, in the baseball's case, it, it's just unreal to think that you could have sports with nobody in the stands. It just seems one of the one of the things one of the things the players keep mentioning is that, you know, they they are kind of used to it on every level other than major league baseball. You know, there whether it's be high school, college, especially with the high school games when they're playing in let's say Wrigley Field, uh, where there's hardly anybody, if anybody at all, for a championship game. Uh, and that's why they they seem ready to go just because they they you know whether it's Binghamton uh, in the minor leagues or you know not everybody can play in Coney Island where it's ten thousand for every game. Yeah, true. Well, that's a good uh, observation. Too, is that is true? In high school, we hardly had anybody come to our ball game. At basketball games in Indiana, uh, we might have eight or nine thousand in attendance, but uh, <laughs> a ba- high school baseball game. Uh, even some of the parents don't get there, but um, yeah, that's a good observation. I want to, of course, um, we, we've got to get going, but I, it, just in terms of the union, it, it's a question that popped into my head uh, that we could expand on so so much another time uh, when it comes to the the uh, uh, early years of, of a union being formed, and and I have to re, you know I I have to re-read everything. Uh, it's been a long time, but one of the things I remembered was that Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale were the ones who first looked for an agent. Now, do you think that that may have not, you know, of course you had the Kurt Flood uh, uh, thing, but with, with Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale, do you think a lot of that had to do with the fact that they were in Los Angeles, in, in Hollywood with so many agents? Yeah, it's a tough question for me because I was not in the game at the time 
you know, I played with Don Drysdale and and Koufax for about five years, but they they had their best years after I was already retired. And uh, so, yeah, the agent was not around in my day. We we negotiated our, for ourselves. Well, that's kind of what Don uh, Drysdale and Sandy did too. Uh, you know, they went in and uh, as a as a team to talk to uh, about their salaries, and uh, that was well known. That uh, of course, Bavese told me later that, uh, that he gave uh, he gave Kofax a little bit higher. Uh, uh, what he asked for, and uh, so he took ten thousand of, of the budget that O'Malley gave him to uh, sign the players, and uh, he gave D- uh, Drysdale uh, a little more, and O'Malley took it out of his pay. <laughs> he said, "I hope Drysdale thank you because uh, this comes <laughs> out of your bonus." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I answered your question, but uh, oh no, it's just it's it's uh, you. I, I, you gave a, a great insight one way or the other. You know, that's just it. It does seem with, with them negotiating for themselves, they still had that backdrop of Hollywood uh, that might have added a, a little bit of of thought process to to going in there and and furthering the player's power within the game. Uh, so that it's it's very interesting and and. Something that I, I, even though it doesn't necessarily uh, compute in terms of the era that I'm going to be telling, it's still, you know, the the foundations of what ended up happening with Marvin Miller certainly uh, were planted within the era that we're discussing. So, Carl, uh, you know, yeah, go ahead. Uh, excuse me for interrupting. You. Uh, came to mind to me that Bob Feller pitching at Cleveland, uh, the he he was one of the first players, I think the first player, to ever have incentives in his contract. And uh, he's a good, smart businessman. He saw that on the days he pitched, the crowds were uh, were bigger. And uh, so he began to negotiate with the owners of Cleveland that, hey, I want a piece of the action. When I pitch, I bring a lot of people to the ballpark. And so he was one of the first I think the first player ever to have a contract uh, that uh, was an incentive based on how many people attended the games when he pitched above the average. And so, you know, Koufax and Drysdale would would be in the same category. Uh, people found out who was pitching today, and it was, it was Sandy or, or Don Drysdale. Uh, they're going to go to the ballpark. But I don't think they ever were able to negotiate based on uh, actual attendance. But Feller, real early on, back in the 40s, uh, he got a chunk of the attendance numbers. And and I thought that was one of the smartest moves I ever uh, heard of a ball player doing. But all contracts, all the way through my career, were one year. Never got... No player, no manager, uh, until DeRocher, maybe in the mid-50s, got two years one one time. <laughs> but uh, everybody was on a – Walt Olson managed the Dodgers for 24 years on one-year contracts. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, that restricted a lot. You couldn't buy a house where you were playing. <laughs> you couldn't build a 30-year mortgage on a one-year contract. So 
Yeah. Uh, That's the way it was in those days. But uh, the union, you know, I was never around when the union was formed. And, in fact, uh, the player reps of my era uh, didn't – we rejected the opportunity to form a union. Uh, But the union itself, if a union sticks to what a union is really designed to do is represent the worker uh, and not – get political and all the rest of it. The union's a good thing. Uh, it gives the players uh, a voice. Uh, but uh, to, the hammer is a strike, and I'm totally 100% opposed to a strike. How could any? How could it be uh, okay in the in the law even that non-owners can shut down a business? Uh, that to me, mm. that, uh, that's that never should happen. But mm. uh, that's a that's a deep subject, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you don't even talk about that at the dinner table. So, right, uh, <laughs> oh, it's gotten it's gotten you know the divides have gotten worse and worse, and and that's why we have these conversations for proper discourse and and yeah. conversation to remind people that we 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 can all be civil. It, you know, and and I understand why everything is so heightened, um, but. You know, you just have to, as somebody who sometimes does have anger issues, you know, you just have to take a breath and, and remember to be without yourself, if you will, you know, yeah, right. be within well, and without uh, to to look at your ego. Well, I, I'm never opposed to unions because uh, a voice for the, uh, for the worker is important. So they can do a lot of good things, and they did. For baseball, um, uh, Don Fear was ahead of the Players Union after Marvin Miller, and I got to know Don Fear quite well. And the union did a lot of good things for the players, and even the retired players benefited uh, by the baseball union. Uh, So uh, I don't have any uh, uh, ill feeling about uh, union. If it's handled right, uh, the voice of the worker is is important. But... uh, uh, I was never. Uh, my dad was a strong union man himself. Uh, hmm. With General Motors, uh, worked for thirty some years, but uh, but the, the the union has to realize, uh, as well as the owners, that uh, the game itself is what keeps everything going. Uh, you can't beat up on the game for personal gain. Uh, you got to protect the, the game itself. And I think right now this unusual circumstance uh, ought to bring the owners and players closer together, uh, yeah. not not divided. And, and uh, you know, the, it, it, we could really just talk about it uh, nonstop, but, you know, it goes back to that question of what the owners care about. I, I, I think that even if people have always questioned Walter O'Malley's um, uh, his, his motivations for everything, uh, I, I still think your era, most owners like the game more than some of these owners now. And, and, and because a lot of the owners are looking at it as, all right, well, we're going to make, we're going to uh, lose less money if we don't play. So some of them are considering taking the entire season off. But, and, and then you think, well, but you're not playing the long game, you, you, you think, and you want to say to them, but some of these guys are, don't even care about the long game. They just care about, 
what they can, the dividends that are coming in year to year. And what I like to say to them as they wait for their billion dollar profit to sell the team, the team's not going to be worth anything if baseball isn't worth anything. Well, that's a good point. And, you know, you got to realize the fan base that supports baseball, uh, the fan base ought to be considered here. What What's it going to do to the fan base to have no no season? Uh, yeah, they're not going to go away. Uh, baseball has survived uh, depressions and wars and everything else, but uh, you got to protect the game. Uh, and it, it's not a guarantee that it'll always be here. You know, we think baseball's here forever. Oh, no. Uh, two or three generations from now, if we have uh, some kind of a downturn in interest uh, and kids quit playing baseball and they all uh, or something, uh, survived a lot to stay here, but there's no guarantee that uh, 50 years from now, uh, baseball might be history. You don't think it's true, but it is true. Did I lose you on that one, <laughs> Sam? Hello, hello, hello. 